Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. Hello, you are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to mental health, self-improvement, and parenting. I am the host, Amie Quirconi. Remember, One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is for adults only and does contain adult language, especially today's episode. So if you bristle when you hear cuss words, this might not be the program for you. However, if you like real stories and advice from real people so that we can all get better together, you're in the right place. And so welcome. This episode is a personal story, an inside look at an incident my family experienced about three months ago. I had written about it and shared it on my blog at amiquirconi.com, and it was one of my most read posts. I also got messages from parents who used the story as a jumping off point to have conversations with their own teens about suicide. So I figured that it was worth sharing again here on One Broken Mom, especially since many of you are going to be introduced to me and my mission through the podcast and not actually the blog. And One Broken Mom is like that. It will meander from time to time from telling my personal stories to interviews with experts. That's because due to privacy protections, the therapists I talk to can't share the anecdotal experiences of their clients. But I think it's important to hear and see the real-life application of what we're going to learn about And so I'm committed to being that person when it's necessary. And if I can share stories of other families who want the same things as me, which is to help others learn from their experiences so that our lives are better, I most certainly will have them here with us. My apologies if you already read the article. However, if this is new to you, please enjoy. We all know that life moves in waves. Some flow at you gently with barely any amplitude, and you are rocked into a calming submission that life is good. Smooth sailing, so to speak. And then there are times as storms rage where the waves just keep crashing down one after the other and you feel like you're going to drown. This is how it's starting to feel like in the last month. Not only did I have to set a heartbreaking boundary on my relationship with my ex that included leaving behind a shared business with him that I truly loved, But off the radar for the last couple of weeks, our tiny family has been dealing with teen suicide. A little over a month ago, my daughter had a friend from grade school kill herself. It left my daughter wounded and grieving, naturally. It also opened the doorway to have conversations about when kids need to reach to adults for help if they have a friend they're worried about, which would be important in more ways than I'd realize very soon. You see, because children are not immune from waves either. And in less than a month, I would get a text from her during school that said she was gravely concerned about a best friend from her old middle school. Her friend was talking about killing herself, and my daughter believed she'd do it. I told my daughter that it is likely that what happens next, what I end up doing, could soil her friendship. My daughter replied that she didn't care as long as her friend lived. So I called the middle school this girl attended, and I spoke to a counselor there. I told them that my daughter believed her friend was in imminent danger and asked the school to intervene. I knew that the school was obligated to report this incident to the state 
as well if they believed there was a chance that she could do anything to hurt herself or if she was being abused at home. My daughter and I had hoped that would help, and I hoped that she could see that adults can do things that kids can't do. But in just a little over a week, I'd get another grief-stricken text from my daughter, only one hour into her school day, telling me she'd heard that her friend was hospitalized after attempting to overdose with pills from the family medicine chest. Suicide had now shown up on our doorstep for the second time in a year. For almost two weeks, my daughter's well-being was slowly eroding. She wasn't sleeping, and as a result, her mental state was weakening, getting her caught up in this swirling cycle of a flood of thoughts at night, keeping her awake and wearing her down. She told me that she's worried that when her friend would go home, she would do it again, and that she's going to succeed because it turns out this was the fourth time she'd tried, and she's been getting closer with each attempt. I tried coaching her through it by giving her ideas on how to diffuse the thoughts, how to distract herself from them. I pointed out that the feelings weren't helping her friend at all because they were trapped in her head and instead were only hurting herself. Rationalizing with her at times would set her off and she'd go into a moment of rage. I could see that she was walking that thin line between being okay and being consumed by the cortisol being sent from her brain, instigating her fight or flight responses. I was patient and resolute. I offered to take her to see my therapist with me. She countered that therapists don't work. When she'd reach out in the middle of the night to let me know she wasn't sleeping, I'd offer a place next to me in my bed, but she'd refuse with a courteous, it's okay, I'll be fine. And so each morning I'd check in on her, close the door to her room, report her as absent for school, and wait for her to get up on her own. I knew that having a well-rested and in the best state of mind was far more critical than an agenda or a school schedule. And this went on for days until one Thursday morning. That Thursday morning seemed normal-ish. She hadn't slept much the night before, but she was up and ready to go to school by about 9 a.m. I drove her in and she was in high spirits. She loves her new school and has lots of friends. In fact, she has said over and over again how happy she is now that she's here with me in Snohomish. I waved goodbye that morning, told her I loved her, and I headed back home. Now, again, shit has been sideways for me as well this whole time. I have been beaten by waves for weeks and doing my best to keep my head above the water for my kids' sake and mine. But also on Thursday, I was already dealing with the stress of not having enough money to keep up with life. The change in my living situation left me with double the household expenses and half the income. And being self-employed has been a blessing and a curse. One, I've been able to have the flexibility needed to be there for my kids when they've needed me. And they have needed it as they are adjusting to a new life in a new town. But on the other hand, every minute or hour I'm spending for them, I'm not working. And unlike other parents who are salaried and have vacation or sick leave to help fill in those gaps, for me, not working is not earning anything. There's no backup plan. There's no second income. And my retirement savings I moved out to Snohomish with years ago had been absorbed by the life and the people that I was now presently leaving behind. I'm also living in the aftermath of poor financial choices rooted in the prior baseline thinking of needing to prove myself to someone by buying them things I couldn't afford. Sadly, the only proof I received was the growing credit card balances and the same indifferent attitude. So one month after I pay the mortgage for the house, food, auto insurance, and my student loan payment, I pick up health insurance and my car payment. Then the next month, after I cover my basics again, I skip health insurance and car and go for making payments on credit cards. And then I swing back the other direction the following month, leaving me perpetually one month behind on something. 
But the new addition to the picture is this impending legal expenses as a result of enforcing my rights with my ex and our business relationships, which started to roll in that week too. And so there I was on the phone negotiating with the second credit card company of the day when my phone kept getting text and phone call interruptions. I didn't check or respond because I needed to finish my call first. But when I hung up, I saw a text from my daughter's middle school counselor, and she was pretty direct. My daughter had told friends she was going to take some pills the night before to kill herself, and a classmate reported it to the school. So now she was in the office and I needed to come pick her up. That's when the next wave came crashing down on me and I let it push me under for a minute. I could taste the salt water in my mouth and the burn in my eyes, and that's when I realized I wasn't drowning. I was crying. I got in my car and headed straight to the school. I felt disoriented. I was knocked off my feet. Of course, this would be today. I had said before in another post that the walk down the mountain was going to be treacherous. Well, clearly, I was only partly right, because the universe was going to throw a storm at me along the way. The meeting with the counselor was tense. She recommended I lock up all the alcohol, medications, and sharp sharp objects right away. And I thought to myself, lady, have you seen my tiny house? I don't have a fucking empty safe to put all that shit in. She also recommended that if I was concerned about my daughter, again, to take her to an emergency room or call 911. And she had said that this was serious because my daughter apparently had a plan. I looked over at her and asked her if she could tell me what happened. She'd said she'd taken a bottle of pills out of our closet and had them in her room. I asked him where they were now, and she told me they were in the gap between her mattress and the wall. We all sat quietly for an eternity while I tried to understand what I was supposed to do next. I never thought or wanted to be in this situation. I finally stood up and announced we were leaving. My daughter grabbed her things and stormed out ahead of me. When we got outside, I called for her to slow down. I just wanted to hug her. She was pissed because one of her friends had violated her trust. And when we got to the car, I tried to explain the irony of that since someone did exactly what she had and I had just done for her friend in Sammamish. But irony and rational thoughts, they had no place in the conversation at the moment. As we drove home, I had more questions, but my daughter had a lot of I don't knows. I told her that I'd been asking her if she was okay this whole time, and she was telling me she was fine. She replied, clearly, mom, I'm not fucking fine. As we neared our home, I finally said to her, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. And she replied in her well-practiced caustic tone, well, then just take me to the hospital. That's when I made that split second decision to drive right past our house and onto Monroe to the emergency room. I expected some protest from her once she figured out that that's what I was doing, but I was wrong. It was somehow relieving and unsettling at the same time. Here was my daughter that I couldn't coax into going with me to meet my therapist for days, and now she seemed comforted by the fact that we were heading to the hospital instead. I didn't know if I should be happy or terrified. We check in, and I text my daughter's dad to tell him where to meet us and why. I also text my son to let him know that I wasn't going to be around for a part of the basketball game that night, an evening he and I were looking forward to because it was K-State, my alma mater, playing in the uh, college tournament. But it seemed March had its own madness in mind. We are told by the attending physician that a social worker will come by to speak with us and do an assessment. And when that happens is unknown. As it would turn out, we waited hours for a behavior specialist to arrive. We checked my daughter in at 2 p.m. and the specialist didn't come and visit us until 10 p.m. that night. Aside from our own issues, I became incredibly disenfranchised with the state's mental health programs through this experience. At 10 p.m., our assessment began. And then we waited again. 
when the social worker came in at about 11 p.m. to tell us she recommended checking my daughter into a facility in Marysville, the room erupted in rage and tears, and the sonic boom struck us all, her dad, her brother, and me. After the social worker left the room, I moved in to hug my daughter, but she pushed back, jumped off the bed, and ran to the bathroom, locking herself inside. And we all sat in silence as she sobbed. Through the door, I could feel her body and chest lurching as she struggled to inhale and exhale, her cries echoing off the walls, and I sat there, transformed from her mother to me at her age. And I felt her loneliness, her betrayal, her abandonment. I sat there and then realized... She doesn't just need me to hear her. She needs me to feel her. And now I finally understood, and it all became intolerable to me. I got up from the folding chair I'd been occupying, and I started searching for a long, narrow object, something I could put into the bathroom door and unlock it from the outside. My son asked me what I was doing, and when I told him, he pulled his headphones out from his phone and offered them to me and said, will this work? I looked at the jack end and hoped it would. I moved to the door and started to talk to my daughter through it, assuring her I loved her, all the while while jimmying the lock with the end of the headphones, hoping she couldn't hear me trying to break in. I wasn't sure if it would work until I felt the button push in and the door handle turn. Before she could stop me and block the door, I tossed the headphones away and quickly moved into the room, shutting the door behind me and blocking it. It was only a space of about three feet by five feet, so the only way I could see her eye to eye was to slide down and sit on the floor next to her. She tried to shrink herself up into a small ball while telling me she didn't want to be around me right now, but she begged me not to send her away, and she assured me it would never work and that she'd hate me forever. I asked her if she would talk to me some more privately, and she agreed she would. I asked everyone to leave the room while I talked with my daughter alone. I sat on the edge of the bed, and I let her just yell at me. Tell me she hated me now. Tell me how much I violated her trust. I was the only person she trusted, and now she couldn't believe anyone anymore. I could see, hear, and feel the desertion rising inside of her. Yes, she'd let the dark thoughts and a lack of sleep intrude into her brain in the middle of the night, but she wanted me to know that clearly she doesn't want to kill herself because in the end, she hadn't actually tried. My daughter told me that therapy never worked for her before because she doesn't feel like she can talk to anyone about what's going on. And when I said I'd be there with her, she countered that it wouldn't matter, using that day as an example. Apparently, when the school counselor asked her to come into the office to talk about the reported attempt, my daughter requested a friend be with her, thinking it would help her relax and speak, but it didn't. My daughter told me, Mom, I only trust you. I can talk to you about anything. One hour a week talking to you would be better than anything else. And all she wanted to get out of that trip to the hospital that day was for someone to tell her what was wrong with her and why she couldn't sleep, and then when she knew, we'd all go home together. Listening to all this was painful and familiar. And I sat there on the edge of her bed and I thought to myself, what would I want right now if this was me? Serve and return. From the moment a baby is born, the interactions between a child and a parent or caregiver are how their brain forms and develops. This fundamental process is called serve and return, and it's how communication and social skills are formed. Babies serve with a cry, a parent returns with food or coddling, both equally important to proper development. Plus, serve and return forms a child's understanding of how relationships should be and generates inside of them that core sense of stability. So if a child reaches out with a serve and is not met with a response or the response is inappropriate, that return, especially during times of stress, this stress then becomes toxic. Once our children become more capable on their own, 
parents begin to think that returns are less necessary, if at all. It is the idea that we have to teach our children independence and that we can't always be there. But I think this is where we're failing right now. A child will naturally seek their freedom. It doesn't have to be thrust upon them. I mean, we see babies struggling to free themselves from their parents' laps so that they can crawl. Our kids run defiantly towards the slide one more time when we tell them we want to go home and leave the park. Or teenagers stay up late at night on their phones with friends even after you've told them to go to bed. So when they're asking for us, albeit indirectly at times, it's a firm signal that they still need something from us. It's not the time to neglect their bid for our attention. Therefore, it's important to understand that a 13-year-old girl is still in the brain-building stages of life, and even more so in some ways. In fact, after the age of 8 years old, a child's experiences not only form new neural connections, but if that support system at home is missing, these experiences can also degrade or weigh down those existing links. And this isn't new-age psychobabble. This is biology and neuroscience. And with a frightening increase in the number of suicides of girls between the ages of 10 and 14, it's visible. Parents are not getting this. In fact, I don't think most people realize that brain architecture is still being built into our early 20s. However, I did have to sit here and wonder, am I projecting my own feelings onto her? Or are these really her own? The rational adults around me said it's possible she's being manipulative and only saying what I want to hear. Was this true? Or was this some sort of dissonance at play? An adult confronted with something that violates their view or opinion of how things should be, and so they've got their defense of that position. I know that both of my kids have told me that trust in them has been one of the best things they've gotten out of living with me in Snohomish. I've given them the space to be themselves without judgment or interference. We've set acceptable boundaries together, and they have been given the freedom to roam within them. And so here I was deciding if I could afford to trust her at her own word. So I thought, what if this is her ultimate serve? A pitch out into the world of extreme despair and hopelessness at being trapped in this cycle of negative thoughts and no sleep. What is the right return for me as her mother? A year ago, my daughter believed I didn't want her. She was unhappy with her life with her dad, but didn't think I'd ever take her in. And I know this because she told me so several times. And what evidence have I given her to the contrary? I divorced her dad eight years earlier and moved out by myself and left them with him. And that's why when confronted with the decision last year to take her and her brother to live with me full time, I knew that no matter what happened to me and my relationship with my boyfriend, which I predicted would fail as a result, I could not let her live her life thinking her mother didn't want her. And I decided I would say yes at any cost. Doing so changed the direction of my daughter's life in profound and positive ways. But I haven't been naive to understand that for the eight years we were only together on weekends, that my absence in her life did not have some sort of lingering effect that would take time to heal. And here in the earliest hours of a Friday morning in March, sitting in an emergency room, I understood from listening to her that sending her to an inpatient facility would show her that when she calls out for help, I won't be there to answer, but instead I'll leave it to someone else again. And so I knew I couldn't send her away. Her dad and I spent a couple of hours, at least, in the hallway outside our daughter's room. I knew in my gut it was wrong to send her to inpatient. I sat on a gurney while he leaned against the wall across from me, and we agonized over this together. You know you don't have all the tools to do this, especially with what you've got already going on in your life, right? He said. Maybe, 
But instead of making excuses for that, I see a therapist every week because I need to have them for myself and my kids. You know that love is not enough, right? He said. No, I think that's exactly what she needs to keep getting right now, which is why I'm doing this. How do you know? You know you're taking a gamble here, right? He said. Perhaps you think that, but you'd have to trust I'd never wager on my child's life. And I believe the real gamble is actually sending her away. I then told my ex-husband something he never knew about me, about a time during my freshman year in high school when I had a bottle of my mother's Canadian mist in one hand and was staring into the medicine cabinet looking for something to take with it. It was another one of the many nights I was left at home to take care of my brothers while all my friends were hanging out and having fun together. And so on this particular night, I was exhausted from not being heard. But I didn't do it because I did really want to live. I told my ex-husband if there was anyone in this world who understood our daughter at this moment in time, it was me. Because I did understand the difference between the thinking and the doing. I wasn't looking for attention that night. But on the other hand, I didn't need to be talked out of doing anything. I just needed to be fucking heard by someone to confirm that I mattered. Anyone. And that night, it was one person on the phone that I was talking to. For my daughter, she'd had the same experience I had. While no one knew until the next morning that there were pills stashed away next to her in bed, the night before my daughter had had several classmates coaxing her through the night with their love and support via Snapchat, all while I slept in the other room. And so by the time the morning came around, it all seemed beautiful and I was none the wiser, just like my parents never were. We gathered up the social worker so that we could tell her our decision. But first, we asked her what inpatient looks like. She listed off daily group therapy sessions with other kids her age experiencing the same issues, medication to regulate her emotions, and that the parents would be able to come and visit, but only between 6 and 7.30 p.m. each day. My ex focused in on the medication part, something that made us both, you know, very uncertain. But that was the tipping point for him to finally strongly reconsider the decision to send her away. But to me, it was the limited visitation. And not for the selfish reasons you might presume I was feeling. It was the thought that how could my daughter get better if the one person who will matter the most in her emotional well-being and development for her life is kept at arm's length from her during an extremely poignant time? Who would be there to comfort her and hold her and tell her she's loved? In the cases of emotional and physical abuse, especially at the hands of parents, That condition of limited visitation makes complete sense. Trust me, I get it. But in this case, my daughter's case, the one-size-fits-all approach felt like it would be worse for her than it would be beneficial. And I asked the behavior specialist this directly. Sometimes doing this has the opposite effect, doesn't it? To which she replied, yes. AMA. AMA. It means against medical advice. That's the conditions my daughter was discharged from the hospital under. Her dad and I chose to buck the advice to send her away, medicate her for five to ten days, keep her away from her parents and family, and let other adults attend to her. Is that the right choice for some families? Absolutely, inpatient is important. Was it for us? No, not at this time. Because all I could think about was after spending the time I did with my daughter in that emergency room for almost ten hours was... What if this is not the right way after all? 
What we do know is that suicide is steadily increasing, and people still kill themselves in staggering numbers as compared to homicides. Yes, despite, quote, medical advice, more Americans die at their own hands by murders than by murders, and by double. And it's not getting better, but it's getting worse. Maybe medical advice only suspends the possibility, hits the pause button for a bit, but never completely goes away. And am I not my kid's parent for as long as they are alive? Am I not responsible for parenting them today, but also for their future? Maybe, just maybe, medical advice is not always the answer. If she had taken the pills and made that enormous leap from the thinking to the doing, I would definitely have a different opinion. But in this particular situation, my mother's gut was telling me something else. I'm a natural born systems thinker. And when we talk about looking for triggers and triggering events that can spur on a a person to kill themselves, I think about the word trigger and that a trigger is useless without a gun or a bullet. If I can dismantle the gun and take away the bullets, then the triggers, the inevitable stresses we all face in life won't have the power to kill us because the chamber will be empty or the gun won't exist at all. And I think that starts with remembering that children, including teenagers, need from us unconditional love to build their security upon. And what that looks like is going to be different for every child because their experiences have been different from everyone else. I know, what an unclear and daunting thought that is, right? No easy answers here. For me, I had to trust my daughter and son along with myself that I can hear what they're actually saying to me. And how do I know if I'm doing that? It's easy. I ask them. It's not to say that I didn't bring my daughter home without any conditions. I told her she violated my trust too. And when she didn't come to me when she was feeling low and that she was going to have to earn that back if I was ever to feel like I was going to be able to sleep again, she'd have to sleep in my room until she was back to sleeping through the night on her own. And it was no longer an option as to whether she came to therapy with me. And if that didn't work, we'd find a program for her that didn't require her to be hospitalized. And she agreed to all of it. And without a fight, She crawled into my bed next to me at nearly 3 a.m. and fell right to sleep. And the next night we went to bed early together and she fell asleep again. Becoming bilingual. Nothing has changed in our society since I was my daughter's age. My friends knew more about my own struggles than my mom or grandparents ever did. And that's the same with my daughter. I get it. But do you ever wonder why kids prefer to talk to each other more than adults? I think it's because they all speak the same language and it's not the literal sense and the slang they throw around or the abbreviations and texting and all that crap that I only understand half of it. Instead, they are all operating on the same wavelengths of this unconscious dialect of feelings and emotions and thoughts. I wish my parents would just listen to me is not what we think it means, but other kids, they know exactly what that means. I think as adults, we lose that ability to remember what life felt like at that age as we become more cerebral and less emotional. We approach life more practical and productive, and we get agitated that our teenagers don't think that way, but we're disregarding the fact that they're just not there yet, and we need to remember to meet them where they are, not force them to join us before they're ready. The long-term impact of doing this is ironically the opposite of what we want for our kids, They will grow into emotionally uneven and possibly immature adults at best, depressed and suicidal at worst. So as parents, we have to instead be bilingual, and that is something many of us were never taught to do. 
when my daughter kept telling me I wasn't listening to her and then I kept reciting back everything she'd said to me word for word and more, that's not what she meant. She just can't say it yet. She needs me to feel her, to empathize with her, which is a skill adults are rarely called upon to do in the normal course of life, even though they should. And when I can show her I understand her, she trusts me and she shares more. But instead, as adults, we use our experience to tell our kids that it doesn't matter in real life or that what they're feeling is really not that big of a deal or asking them to stop being so emotional and be more practical. I think perhaps it's hard for adults to allow themselves to slip back into that state of being a teenager because they were never taught how to develop empathy, which kind of does feel like a telepathic ability to understand another person's viewpoint, their emotional state, and the sum of those experiences and how those influence that other person's actions. Or I think some adults, and I was one of them for a while, dismiss the role of childhood experiences on emotional development. And so being mentally transported back in time to our own teenage years is just not essential in our opinion. We are living in their future and can just tell them, don't worry about it, toughen up. So if there's anything that this experience taught me is that we have to figure out what listening really means for each of our kids because their life truly fucking depends on it. And if we can teach them and show them how to develop empathy for others, it can very well improve their own relationship with their children at some point in the future. And like I said before, I'm my kid's parent for as long as they are alive, and then some, and I'm going to do my best. Thank you again for listening to One Broken Mom. I have an open door policy, so if you have a topic or question please visit my website at amiqueercony.com and shoot me a message or find me on Facebook and send me a message there. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, I am always welcoming everyone else's support to this. So do the same thing. Shoot me a message through my email and let me know. Have a great day.